Hello, and welcome to the Michigan Murders. I'm Laura. And I'm Stephanie. Tonight's episode, well, tonight's, today's, whenever you're listening to it, I'm recording at night, uh, <laughs> not brought to us by Old Smoky Apple Pie Moonshine. Oh, there you go. And I'm going to continue to say, you know, if you want to send us free stuff, well, if you're a company <laughs> and you want to offer to send us stuff, I'm not meaning this to anybody. <laughs> Like, I'm not just inviting anyone to send me things. <laughs> Email us. It's in the description. It's probably in there somewhere. I'll probably end up with a shot of whiskey and honey tonight to try to get rid of whatever is harming my throat. I do I like record. that, though. Get some lemon and some honey and some whiskey in there. Just clear your throat right out. Tastes terrible. And I always gag, but... It'll work. I like the taste of it. (laughs) No. (laughs) I'm not a whiskey girl. I'm 100% vodka all the way. Well, I'm I'm drinking moonshine, so yeah, I like whiskey. (laughs) Yeah, you like the rough stuff. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Mm-hmm. I feel like I was going to say something. Oh, yeah. My story is not a happy one by any means, so... I feel like I'm going to need it. Samesies. Is it me first this time or you? I think you're first this time. Okay. So this episode that I have today is on, or whatever you want to call it, is on the murder of Diane O'Connor. Diane O'Connor was born on April 27th, 1954. And in 1989, she married James Dankovic. And then gave birth to her only child, Christopher Dankovic, that same year. Her marriage to James ended amicably in 1995, and Diane and James continued to co-parent Christopher. Diane changed her last name to Michelle after the divorce and was given primary custody, though Christopher did visit his father often in Troy. When Christopher started high school... He began to rebel and argue with his parents, and unfortunately, one of these arguments would be Diane's last, with her life ending just days before her 51st birthday. Wow. Yeah. In April of 2005, Christopher was 15 years old and a freshman at Rochester Adams High School. At this time, Diane realized that Christopher had been using the computer at home to access porn and look up firearms. It's a good combination. Mm, The lucky combo. Some also say that Diane was also concerned about the girl that he was dating as well. And on April 23rd of 2005, Christopher snuck out of his dad's home and rode a bicycle through the snow and was found in Bloomfield Hills trying to enter a school, which Mm. I'm not quite sure why he was trying to get into school. Yeah. Just that he was, which caused him to be taken into police custody, although later being released to his dad. The very next day, Sunday, April 24th, James brought Christopher back home to Diane's place, where Diane, James, and Christopher all sat down and had a family meeting to talk about their concerns with his recent behavior. Later that night, James was unable to get a hold of Diane or Christopher, and he called Diane's mother, who said she would check on them the next morning. When she arrived at the home, what she found was horrific. Diane had been stabbed 111 times. 
Oh, jeez. Yeah. The murder was so extreme that one of her eyes were removed from the repeated stabbing. Whoa. Just grisly. I just can't imagine that many times. That's a long time. And a 15-year-old doing it. Yeah. The Oakland County prosecutor stated this is one of the most horrific crime scenes anyone has ever seen. Diane's white van was missing from the home, and though Christopher didn't yet have a driver's license as he was 15, police believed that he was driving the van at the time. Diane's mother, Christopher's grandmother, said that Christopher may have been responsible for the murder due to the friction in the mother-son relationship at the time. Police found a blue-handled folding knife containing blood and hair at the scene, and additional blood droplets were discovered throughout the home and sinks, and bloody clothing was in the laundry room. Authorities put out an APB, All Points Bulletin, for the white van, which ended up being spotted near Twin Lakes, where James Dankovic had a cabin. Authorities surrounded the cabin and prepared to capture the 15-year-old suspect, and thankfully Christopher cooperated and surrendered without incident. They found military survival gear and guns that he had made using PVC pipe and internet instructions inside the cabin. What the hell? Which, the fact that you can find instructions online on how to make guns. The whole community seemed to be shocked by this revelation, as Christopher was known to be nonviolent and had never been in any serious trouble. He was a decent student and had good family support. Even though his parents divorced, he seemed to have the support and love of both parents and no history of abuse and neglect. And the parents seemed to get along even though they weren't together. So it's not like they were constantly fighting each other and going, oh, you can't go to your father's because he's scum. It was nothing like that. So it had a lot of people questioning like, How could this have possibly even happened? One of Diane's colleagues said Christopher was the center of her life. Every decision was made with him in mind. I never heard her complain about him, except she said he was getting mouthy. After he was arrested, Christopher did confess to the crime. He admitted to it all. He told authorities that an argument over his recent behavior, um, which included looking up porn and weapons websites, triggered a frenzied attack that he insists was not planned. He ended up getting charged as an adult with murder and at the time was facing a life sentence. His attorney, Mitchell Ribbitwer, I think, said that he is baffled and distraught. That he's charged as an adult? It's an adult crime, you know. Very much an adult crime. He stabbed 111 times. Yeah. Or is he baffled that he did it? Like, no, you did it. You remember doing it. Yeah. He went on to explain that he believed Christopher suffered from mental health issues and needed a thorough mental health evaluation before his trial. He also believed that Christopher had a chance at acquittal related to mental illness. Um, However, Christopher had other plans. He instead insisted on pleading guilty and taking responsibility Hmm. for what he had done, which 
I mean, good. Yeah. But I, you know what? I, I think we've talked before, though, in some of these cases about the people that plead insanity usually are not. And the people that don't want to are usually the ones that do have the mental health issues. So I'd say to do that, he definitely had something going on. Oh, something. For sure. Yeah. But it's like, well, yeah. Do you want to send somebody that violent, though? To, like, a mental health institute for two years and then just put them back out on the street? I'm just thinking of a 15-year-old in prison. And that's not a good... (laughs) That's not a good space either. No, very much isn't a very good space. Yeah. I just want to say mental health institute until you turn 18. (laughs) And then... And then transfer to prison. Yeah, that would... That's... That would be perfect. Yeah. Absolutely. He pled guilty in February of 2006 of the stabbing. There were 100, like I said, 111 stabbings, including her chest, back, face, neck, eyes, heart, and head. Wow. It's just he went everywhere. Her mother agreed to a plea deal in which Christopher would be convicted of second degree murder and sentenced between 22 and 34 years in prison. So instead of like getting life, it's only 20. What would he be? Was it 25? Uh, Between 22 and 34. Yeah, he's getting youngish still when he gets out. Grown, but youngish. Yeah, hopefully with his mental health issues under control by then. Yeah. And he also pled guilty to using a computer to access explosive related websites. I don't know. How accessing the websites would have you plead guilty to the, like that doesn't it was yeah, the early two thousands is yeah it's like is looking at something a crime when it's not like if you didn't commit it something bad you know <laughs> right no exactly and if you're just looking at explosive stuff and you do nothing are they going to charge that I mean it was early two thousands the internet was still relatively new yeah. 2005, 2006. I mean, they're still figuring out internet laws with some stuff, so. Facts. I'd say the the making of the explosives would be illegal. The, oh, very much so. Looking up the videos, yeah, it wouldn't be. Although, in a shocking surprise move, the judge rejected the plea. Hmm. However, this caused Christopher to withdraw his guilty plea in March of 2006. The judge defended his decision, citing concerns over public safety following Christopher's release. Hmm. In May of 2006, the prosecution and defense reached another agreement. This time, it was something that would satisfy the judge's concerns. Although the defense attorney firmly believed Christopher should go to trial with an affirmative defense of mental illness, Christopher preferred a guilty plea, even though... He was found guilty in the accepted plea agreement and sentenced to a minimum of 25 years in the Michigan Department of Corrections. His maximum sentence would be 37 years. I'd just like to say how sorry I am for what I did, Christopher Dankovic said at his sentencing hearing. According to his attorney, Diane had mentally abused him, which Mm. I hardcore do not believe. 
Like, this woman was a social worker. She knew therapy. She, like, did in and outs of, like, all the things that she did in her life points as somebody who is way opposite. So, I mean, it can happen, though. I'll say there are some social workers I've met in my lifetime that I thought, this should not be your job because I know what your home life yeah. is like. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> so. And I mean, anybody can surprise you. Yeah, it's possible, but. I don't know. Just something about this, though. Just. When it comes from a defense attorney. Mm. <laughs> and nobody else ever. Even the ex-husband. <laughs> yeah. Like you would think the kid's own father. He had divorced this woman. Like, if you have literally no hold connected to her any longer, she divorced you, you divorced her, and your son is facing this type of jail time, you would think you might be like, oh, no, she was totally terrible. Yeah, any kind of defense. Which, you know, of course, he claimed that that's what led Christopher to have the mental health issues. The judge in the case expressed his frustration over the case, stating, You were a fairly model student. No behavior problems at all. That's what concerns me. I just can't see any good reason for this. Which, I agree. Like, it doesn't make sense. Yeah. That's why I'm like, his school, everything was so perfect. Usually, kids that are being abused at home, too, show some sort of signs in one way or the other. Like they're dropping grades or treating bullying kids or just bad behavior in class. Yeah. Something. Super withdrawing. Right. (laughs) According to a piece written by Christopher himself after he was incarcerated, he refused to plead guilty because he didn't want to believe his thoughts were wrong. So this, from what I was reading, is it was saying he refused to plead guilty, but he did plead guilty earlier. It it had contradicting things in the article. Yeah. Which kind of confused me. He also claims that he had a history of abuse from his mother. He said, my mother sucker punched me and threw me headfirst into our living room's glass and wood coffee table. I don't know. He said, he also said he spent 15 and a half years... In a house with someone who kept my bedroom window nailed shut and barred from me, and barred me from going outside. If you're banned from going outside, you wouldn't be going to your father's that much. If she was punching you in the face, you wouldn't be with your father so often, and your father not saying anything. He would have got custody. Yeah, that's hard to say. I mean, yeah, but like if my son was with his father more times. Like, switching it. If my son was with his father more times than he was me, and I'm seeing him every week, you know, however much, spending time with him, and he has bruises on his face and all these things, I'm going to be questioning their other parent. You never know somebody's parenting style. I mean, your story from last week is an example of that one. I mean, true. Kids weren't saying anything. Family wasn't saying anything. And then look how that played out, so. True. James Dankovic advocates for prison reform, 
writing articles about parenting Christopher from the other side of bars. He had stated that he struggles with the realities of the criminal justice system, including canceled visitations, celebrating birthdays and holidays without traditional decorations or food, and being searched for prior to visits. Yep. Which, I mean, yeah. Standard prison protocol, yeah. He also advocates for improved food and programs for prisoners. He had said, The process is a lot like watching a favorite antique vase shatter after picking up the pieces, gluing it back together, and telling yourself it's as good as new. Christopher is currently housed at Michigan's Thumb Correctional Center. His earliest release date is April 24th, 2030. So, uh, seven years? That'll be the 25th anniversary of his mother's murder. And he will be 41 years old. At maximum, he would be released in 2042 at the age of 53. So he'll be young enough to live within society, but I'm assuming he's going to have a hard time living like properly after spending everything from the age of 15 on in prison. Plus, you know, having that type of crime on your record is going to be difficult to have anybody hire you. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I would just think if like somebody came through and applied to me and a convicted murderer, like hard pass. It's just, it's really sad. I found all of this on uh, the MidwestCrimeFiles.com. But they had, mul there's multiple other articles that talk about this thing. It's just quite, it's a sad case. Yeah, that is a sad case. All the way case. around. Hmm. I'm about to lay down another bummer. Hold on. Oh, no. <laughs> Let me drink some more moonshine very quickly. I'm ready. I'm ready. Let me just chug this glass of moonshine. <laughs> All right. My case today, I'm going to talk about the murders of Kiana Griffin, 25, and Sherletta Baber Bay, 47. I might get some of these names wrong. I don't know if I'm getting all the pronunciations right. I tried to look them up. On March 13th, 2019, at 10.25 a.m. in Grand Rapids, Kiana Griffin called 911. She was whispering, asking for help. She gave her address, said her aunt was killed, and that he was going to kill her too. Kiana gave her name, but as the dispatcher was trying to find out more information, the call disconnected. Police arrived after about seven minutes. The doors were all locked. The house was silent, and everything appeared normal while looking in the downstairs windows. No one answered when they knocked. 911 also tried calling back with no answer, so after spending just under four minutes there trying to make contact, police left. And this is where it gets tricky, and I know you've talked about this before, because according to the law, even with a 911 call, without a cause to enter or invitation, Police cannot enter your home. So they would have to see or hear something uh, while there that would give them cause. Our amendment rights mean law enforcement needs a warrant or a probable cause. Uh, for example, they 
see something through a window or they see the door was busted in or they hear something themselves. Um, or if the dis- dispatcher was still on and could relate to police, they heard something. Um, but would telling the 911 dispatcher to have police come right in be enough? I don't know. I can't even, <laughs> I can't even answer that one. You would think, though, that the 911 call would supersede that. It does not. Like, that is, that is probable cause. Like, someone saying, somebody's dead, he's coming to kill me, we're in this location. You break down the fucking door. It's, unfortunately, it's, well, fortunately or unfortunately, it's not. Because I was trying to look into that as much as I could. It could be a prank call, in which case they would bust down an innocent person's door and then there's issues it could be that somebody calls 911 tells police they want them there and then decide they don't it's like they change their mind and they just don't come to the door if then the police break down your door that's against the law so either way for police in this case it's lose lose cuz you can't like you can't just go in somebody's house that's why you're protected and Say it's that case where you decide you don't want police in there. If there's a case where somebody says they're going to hurt themselves. And there have been bad instances where police come in and something bad happens to the person who said they're going to hurt themselves. And, you know, they die and the police are blamed. So if there's not cause for the police, they're seeing it they are unable to enter your house because of the, it's the Fourth Amendment. It's just crazy. I thought that 911 call alone would be cause enough. Nope. You would think. You would think. Nope, not for police. <laughs> Dang. Yeah. And it'd be a little bit different, I think, if the if she stayed connected. Because when I was listening to the 911 call, you can hear the recording it just cuts off. So there was no struggle for the phone. There was no calling out. You don't hear any shots. It's her whispering in the closet. And so then it's she like hangs if she up. was connected. Yeah, if she was connected, I mean, I guess 911 dispatcher could be like, the police are there at the door. Can they come in? Or even if they heard shots fired over the phone that the dispatchers are on, they could say, shots, shots fired. Shots were fired. Get in there. This is the address we're told. You can bust down the door because we they heard. They had probable cause. True. Because they were still on the phone. They're still hearing what's happening. So. I mean, I guess I kind of get it. I've had to call the police. I'll be honest. I've had to call the police. Not in this building. But when I first lived in the building next door back in the day, um, the people above us, the guy would beat the living hell out of his, his wife. Mm-hmm. And it caused me severe attacks and I would be like in a corner freaking out because it sounded like he was going to beat her through our ceiling and I was losing it and I called the police because you could hear him her screaming no don't touch me him calling her names dragging her a big thump and then silence so I'm freaking out I'm calling the police all they would do was show up knock once and then leave when nobody answered and I'm like she could be dead yeah Unfortunately, Dead. they would have to be there hearing the screams, oh but the response time doesn't allow for that to happen unless, you know, they're going to be screaming for 10 minutes straight by the time they finally get there. Right. 
So, and there's there's no good way to do that. It's like, do you want your rights protected where police can't enter your house? Or do you want them to at any time because they say they have yeah. cause? So it's kind of a no-win yeah. situation in these cases. No, I get it. Yeah, definitely. So a second 911 call came two hours and 18 minutes later when Kiana's brother found her body. Kiana Griffin had turned 25 years old just five days earlier and someone had shot her four times, including once in the face. And there, there's also that 911 call recording that's heartbreaking to hear, and it was just awful. But Police found Kiana's aunt, Charletta, lying on her bed under a blanket, and it appeared she had been shot in the back of the head as she lay watching an iPad. The tablet was still playing, and earbuds were still in her ears when police found her. Two other people who lived in the house weren't home. One was Jacqueline Baber Bay, who owned the house and had been at work since 8 a.m. Only one was unaccounted for, Charletta's boyfriend, who went by Jay. Charletta's family told police that she was sweet, trusting, and nurturing, and had never been social. The article said Jay was her first real boyfriend, and the couple kept to themselves, spending most of their time in their bedroom. GRPD Detective Kelly, I know I'm going to mess this name up, Bra, Brate, wrote in her report that, quote, What we were gathering was that most did not care for Jay and did not speak to him often. We were told Jay did not have a job. He did not use Facebook as far as they knew. They did not know any of his family and they did not have a phone number for him. The family only knew that Jay had gone to jail for failing to pay child support. That's that's what he was saying. Detective Amanda Johnson went through Charletta's closet and found an orange Nike shoebox. Detective Johnson said, quote, As I began to go through the items in the box, I found some old jail mail letters to Charletta from a man named Darrell Brown. I read a few of the letters, and in one of them, Darrell tells Charletta that his name is Darrell, but he goes by Jay, and all of his letters were signed J. Detective showed a neighbor Drell Brown's mugshot, and they confirmed J was Drell Brown. While searching an alley northwest of the house, hours after the murders, a detective captain found a tossed-aside box of ammunition next to a white plastic bag with what looked like the muzzle of a gun sticking out. Tests later matched the 9mm high-point pistol to casings found at the crime scene. While searching Charletta's bedroom, police found an empty high-point gun box in a dresser that held men's clothing. The box had the gun's serial number and a purchase permit, which included the name of the pistol's buyer, a woman who reported the gun stolen in 2017. Police also discovered that same woman filed a complaint in 2018 about harassing texts she'd been receiving where she claimed that her ex-boyfriend, known as Jay, had been harassing her by cell phone. Her gun was stolen around the same time she dated Jay. What a coincidence. What a little quinky dink. Yep. Totally unexpected. <laughs> the victim's family said police essentially gave Brown a three-hour head start. According to the police report, after the murders, officers canvassed the area for surveillance cameras and found videos showing where Brown went that afternoon. Cameras caught Brown on foot a mile north of the crime scene, two hours after the bodies had been discovered. One of his stops was the Grand Rapids Children's Museum. What? Weird choice. 
An employee said Brown had told the front desk he knew someone inside the building, but staff told Brown he could not wander the museum. About 20 minutes after he left the Children's Museum, he was caught on a business's surveillance camera in the area of Leonard Street and Turner Avenue Northwest. One of Brown's ex-girlfriends dropped him off in that neighborhood. Soon after, Darrell Demon Brown vanished. From what I could find, his middle name is Demon. Demon or Damon? D-E-M-O-N. I mean, I guess it Lovely. could be Damon, but it's it's the word Demon. Lovely. Mm-hmm. Interesting name choice. but And unfortunately, this story only continues to be sad from here. After Kiana and Charletta were murdered, the house that they lived in is gone too since it was bulldozed after a deadly fire in July 2020. Started by candles in the enclosed porch that had been lit for a vigil held the night before to honor Charletta and Kiana. This is just... It, it gets so much worse. Firefighters found the bodies of Jacqueline Baber Bay, 65, and her grandson, Marion Cummings, who was five years old, in a second floor bedroom at the back of the house. Both died of smoke inhalation. And unfortunately, Darrell Brown, a.k.a. Jay, is still missing, and he is a wanted person. To this day. To this day. They have not found him. Killed four people. Well, two. And then the unfortunate fire. Yeah. I don't know. I would say that's connected. It wouldn't have happened. <laughs> that's, that's true. It would not. At least in my, in, in my, I just, I blame it all. They wouldn't have had to light candles for a vigil had he not killed two people. Yeah. It was weird because his family didn't want to talk to anybody. They basically told police to go away. Not being helpful, so... Um, yeah. Man. I found that... It's kind of... I don't know if it's a a news website in general, but it's woodtv.com was was the uh, place that had the recordings and the information about the case. Wow. Yeah. It's really sad. It's rough. And I, I think it was recommended somewhere by a listener, but I can't remember who recommended it. I can't find it anywhere. Well, whoever recommended it, thank you for your input. Yeah. We appreciate it. Sometimes it gets hard for us to pinpoint specific ones that we want to do. And it sometimes gets a little sparse and we have to do extra digging. So we definitely appreciate anybody's input on anything they might want to hear. Yeah, I like the recommendations. It's very helpful because then I, I don't have to dig through my pile of stuff and go, which one? <laughs> what exactly. am I doing? Yeah. Wait a second. What was I looking at? A name to start from is always helpful. Absolutely. Well, thank you everybody for listening. Be safe out there and watch out for the crazies. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. The music titled Teller of the Tales was provided by Kevin McLeod and can be found at incomtech.filmmusic.io.